Hey there, I'm so happy that you are here. So today is the final sermon for our sermon series that's been happening about like um, this, the character uh, of God, who he is, who he's proclaiming that he is. And Pastor Allen just does an incredible job today tying it up. So I'm super happy that, um, that you are here for that. Uh, following the sermon, there is going to be a conversation unpacking the things that have been talked about and, and bringing up things um, that that could possibly inspire things a bit beyond just the sermon. So please hang around for after that. Um, so that's all I got. And here we go. Hey, Christ community, so good to be with you today um, at really the start of Holy Week. We have a number of spiritual connection opportunities this week, uh, a prayer and worship service, Sunday night, Palm Sunday night, um, that's going to be live streamed. Our Good Friday service is going to be live streamed, or you can come in person. Um, and then Easter services, all of them will be live streamed, or you also can come in person. And if you come in person, just remember uh, the whole parking thing, you know, we're asking people just to create space around our building for um, new people and for guests. And so if you're able to park a little ways away in the central lot or whatever, that would be awesome. And also if you're able to go to um, one of the other services beside the 930 service, that also would be really, really helpful. So super excited about this coming week. Today, we're finishing up a teaching series in which we've been focusing on this very important foundational question of what is God like? Now, in order to answer that question, we've been looking at a very significant seminal passage in the Old Testament in which God actually reveals himself to us. This passage is found in Exodus chapter 34, verses six and seven. So let me read this passage one more time here. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, as we have seen for the past several weeks, this passage is incredible in terms of what it reveals to us about God's heart, about his character. He is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. He is eager to forgive us. All of this is absolutely amazing and wonderful. And I actually think we would spend more time in this passage if it weren't for the last line. That last line, what kind of a God are we talking about here that punishes children for their parents' and grandparents' sins? I mean, this passage feels, so, it, it feels to be so out of place. And so unlike everything else that we've learned about God in this passage. So what is going on here? Well, what's happening is that God is highlighting in a, in a very Hebrew way, one other aspect of his character and that attribute is his justice. Look again at, at the start of this final phrase, verse seven, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. One of the foundations of our society today is our justice system, right? We have justices or judges in place that make sure that wrongs are punished and that people pay for the hurt they've caused and that justice is done. I mean, how would we feel if a judge just let criminals go free without any punishment? How would you feel if a judge just dismissed the charges against Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein or Derek Chauvin or the Boulder King Supers shooter? If they just dismissed charges, we would be outraged and rightly so. I picked up uh, the, my Wall Street Journal uh, last, last money and this was the headline regarding Ukraine. Reports of atrocities stir outrage. Yeah, injustice stirs in all of us a sense of outrage, and that outrage is appropriate. So when we read in Exodus 34 that God does not leave the guilty unpunished, that's actually a really good thing. We wouldn't want it any other way. We wouldn't want a God who turns a blind eye to rape and prejudice and sex trafficking and child abuse and murder. A God who doesn't hold accountable those who hurt others, those who lie and deceive. We desperately want and need a God of justice. His justice is a loving thing. It's a way of protecting the vulnerable. It's a way of exposing and restraining the, the, the spread of harm and evil. 
Again, God's justice is a really good thing. The challenge that arises is that sometimes in the Bible, this idea of, of just punishment is linked with God's wrath, his anger. And this is where so many people struggle. When we hear about God's wrath, we often envision this angry, vindictive God who is constantly mad at humanity, this sour, temperamental God who can't wait to punish us. I mean, if that's someone's perception of God, no wonder they want nothing to do with him. And this is why I feel that this passage in Exodus 34 is so important. It shows us the whole picture of who God is. A God who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, and yes, a God who is just. See, I just wanna make sure that we keep this whole passage in the forefront of our minds as we look at this last phrase, this last part of this passage. Whatever God says about himself here in verse seven does not in any way contradict any aspect of his character that has already been described. So let's look in more detail at this last statement. Again, it reads, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now on the surface, it sounds like God is punishing children and grandchildren for something they didn't do, which is totally unfair and unjust. And scripture would agree with that statement. For instance, in Ezekiel 18 verse 20, we read, the child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. So this passage in Exodus 34 is not talking about God punishing people for things they didn't do. That's not justice. So what is it talking about? Why are children and grandchildren mentioned in this passage? Why not just say the guilty will be punished? Well, here's what I think is going on. God wants us to understand that our sin, our rebellion, our, our wickedness doesn't just impact us. It also impacts others, especially others in our own family. I mean, how many of you here, how many of you watching this have been negatively impacted, perhaps profoundly impacted by a parent or a grandparent's sin of abusive anger or a bitter, bitter critical spirit or an addiction to alcohol or pornography or an addiction to work, an adulterous relationship that led to divorce? I don't need to go into all the sociological research out there about how these things have a profound impact upon children. And what often happens is that those children naturally end up responding to that hurt and that brokenness in sinful ways. And sometimes similar ways, they become bitter. They become angry. They become addicted, which just enables this sin to continue to poison and impact generations. And the cycle just keeps getting repeated, sometimes in increasing ways. This is a huge theme in scripture, starting at the very beginning in the, in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve choose to rebel against a specific command of God. Their son Cain does so as well. Only his rebellion is now even worse than Adam and Eve's. His, he murders his own brother. Well, then later in that same chapter, we're told that Cain's grandson, a guy named Lamech, was boasting about killing two people, including a young boy. Three to four generations were being impacted. Fast forward to Abraham, who struggled some with deception. His son Isaac had the exact same struggle. So then when Isaac had a son named Jacob, guess what sin Jacob struggled with? Deception. Jacob deceived his dad to obtain the firstborn blessing, resulting in tons of pain and heartache. And then later on, Jacob has 12 sons. And one day, 10 of them decide to sell their brother Joseph into slavery. And then they go home and totally lie to their dad about it telling him that Joseph was killed. I mean, they kept up this lie for decades and it caused unbelievable pain and heartache. What we see in Genesis is the literal playing out of this principle from Exodus 34. One generation's sin can impact the next generation, which can impact the next generation. Each generation is freely choosing this path, but they were influenced by their parents. Now, this highlights an incredibly important truth regarding how God punishes. And this ties directly into this theme of God's wrath, his anger. 
See, we, we typically think of God's punishment or his wrath in terms of him being the direct cause of some immediate action against someone who steps out of line. You know, sort of like the Greek god Zeus sending lightning bolts to punish and inflict pain. That's how we envision God's wrath. But, the, that, that, but that image of wrath is not at all what we see throughout the, 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 the overarching story of the Bible. When you begin to look at this theme of God's wrath, his punishment throughout the whole Bible, you realize that God's wrath is consistently expressed in the way it's described in Exodus 34. God's punishment, his wrath is experienced by us in him allowing us to experience the natural impact and consequences that happen from our sinful choices. It's not that God actively and directly punishes. It's actually the opposite. God steps back and simply allows our sinful choices to play out in our lives. See, that's what's going on in Exodus 34 when God says he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. In the Hebrew language, this phrase to the third and fourth was, a, was an idiom that they used, which basically meant however many are needed to the third and fourth, however many are needed. So this is not a rigid statement about the third and fourth generation being punished. It's simply describing a punishment that goes as far as needed based on behavior, which is actually a very loving way to dispense punishment. Many parents and teachers have been positively impacted by a disciplinary approach known as love and logic. Love and logic. Well, I got on their website, Love and Logic's website, and I read a summary of their approach. And as I was reading, I was like, this is exactly God's approach with us. So here's what the website says. The love in Love and Logic means that we love our kids so much that we are willing to set and enforce limits. This love also means that we do so with sincere compassion and empathy. The logic in love and logic happens when we allow children to make decisions, affordable mistakes, and experience the natural or logical consequences. Our children learn that the quality of their lives depends on the quality of their choices. I love that description because it shows how part of what it means to be a loving parent is to let our children experience the consequences of their actions. Raylene and I are doing this all the time with our son, Josh. For instance, um, many evenings we will say to Josh, hey, okay, if you clean up the table and get in the shower in the next 10 minutes, we all can watch our, you know, your favorite show, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Okay, but as often happens, if he decides to goof around and to play with the dogs and to not get in the shower before the timer goes off, he misses out on watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that evening. He experiences punishment. Now, here's something I hadn't thought about until recently. When he makes that decision to not shower in time, I feel sad because I wanted to snuggle up on the couch with him and watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., so am I angry at him for disobeying? There's maybe a little anger, but the far more prominent emotion is sadness at what we all are going to miss out on. See, this perfectly fits with the image of God that we're given in Exodus 34. He is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, loving, faithful, forgiving, and he is just. When we choose to do our own thing and not do what he commands or wants us to do, he lovingly lets us experience the consequences of that, hoping that our experiencing those consequences might influence our decisions next time. See, that willingness to let us experience the consequences of our sinful choices is what the Bible calls wrath. That's what the Bible calls wrath. When we truly understand this, friends, it changes our whole understanding of and our attitude towards God's wrath. It is not something that we need to be embarrassed by. It, it is something that actually reflects his loving heart. Now, this is so clearly seen in the contrast that is revealed in these verses in Exodus 34. So God says in verse 6, that his love is maintained to thousands 
of generations, but his punishment only extends to the third and fourth as long as necessary. Notice the contrast that is being presented to us. The contrast is, it's huge. It is dramatic and it is intentional. Love to thousands of generations, punishment to a few. Don't miss the meaning of this. The predominant characteristic of God is love. And every other attribute fits into that, even his justice His wrath is an expression of his love, love and logic. God's wrath is primarily expressed in him allowing us to experience the consequences of our sinful choices, all the while hoping that that changes our hearts. His wrath is intended to be redemptive. Now, again, this is a major theme in the Bible. Over and over again in the Old Testament, when God's people start going astray and worshiping other gods, what does God do? Well, here's the language the Bible uses. God hands them over to the consequences of their sin. He gives them over. He hands them over. In other words, he gives them what they think they want This is the entire book of Judges. (laughs) This is it. Look at Judges 6, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. The people are freely choosing to do evil. So what does God do in response? No lightning bolts here. No, he just lets them experience the consequences of trying to live their life without him. God's basically saying, you want to do your own thing and not follow me? Go for it. But without my protection, you're going to get overrun by enemies. And that's exactly what happens. So then when they finally get miserable enough being under these enemies, they they repent. And in his compassion, God delivers them. But eventually they start choosing their own way, worshiping idols, all that stuff, and the cycle gets repeated. That's the book of Judges. (laughs) That's the book of Judges. Now, once Israel becomes a nation and repeatedly drifts from their allegiance to God and they start worshiping other idols, what does God do? He allows them to be taken into exile to a foreign land. He allows them to experience the natural consequences of their sinful choices. Now, once you look at scripture through this lens, you see it everywhere. Once you look at scripture through this lens, you realize that God's wrath is not something to be embarrassed about or be embarrassed by or to cringe about. It is a powerful picture of his redemptive love, a love that agonizes over our sinful choices while letting us experience the consequences of those choices. Now, this understanding of God's wrath is not only found in the Old Testament. It's also found throughout the New Testament. For instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at this in detail a year ago, crucial sermon Jesus gave in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, a lot of really powerful stuff there. So throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus repeatedly warns us of the impact of not following what he says. The whole sermon ends with this whole story, building your house on, you know, on a rock or building it on sand. You know, it's all about, are we putting into practice what he's telling us, right? Being on sand, that's a warning. that when we don't build our lives on what Jesus wants, things collapse. There are other specific examples. He talks about how lust brings destruction into our lives now. He warns us against lust because it brings destruction now. He warns us against anger because it brings destruction into our lives now. See, his warnings about judgment are not primarily referring to some future punishment that awaits us at the end of time. No, we experience God's wrath right now when we rebel against him and we experience the consequences that that causes. But again, it is not a vindictive, callous wrath. It is an agonizing wrath that longs for us to choose him, but gives us the freedom to make that choice. 
So this is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us these really strong warnings about the impact of our choices in the present, the impact of our choices now. And again, they're very strong warnings. It's, it's interesting how so often we have this idea that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and anger and the God of the New Testament, i.e. Jesus is loving and kind, but that's not an, that those two statements, are, that's not really an accurate description. What we actually find is that the God of the Old Testament is way more compassionate and loving than we give him credit for. And the God of the New Testament, Jesus talks a lot more about judgment than we realize. They are both describing the same God, a God of love who warns us against the judgment, his judgment, his wrath, the natural, i.e. the natural consequences that come when we don't align our lives with his kingdom. Now, look, I realize that this is a huge uh, paradigm shift. I get it. (laughs) This is a huge paradigm shift. Um, It has been for me, and and I think for for many of us as well, it's a paradigm shift. When we hear the words God's wrath, we instinctively think of the end times, right? We instinctively think of God's wrath being poured out in the end times, but that's not how the Old Testament described it. And it's honestly not the primary way the New Testament describes it. One of the most thorough descriptions of God's wrath in the New Testament is found in the book of Romans chapter one. So look, look at verse 18, Paul writes, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people. Okay, notice Paul is not talking here about God's wrath as being something that's waiting to be unleashed in the future at the end of the age. No, he uses the present tense. God's wrath is being revealed. So how is it being revealed? Well, there's one phrase Paul uses three times throughout the rest of the book of, of, of the book of, excuse me, the chapter one of Romans. He uses three times the same phrase throughout chapter one of Romans to explain to us how God's wrath is being revealed. Here it is. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. God gave them over to shameful lusts. God gave them over to a depraved mind. Friends, this is the exact same language used in the Old Testament. God's wrath is expressed not in some angry outburst from him, but rather in his decision to give people what they want, to allow people to freely choose to follow their sinful desires, which over time results in them being overtaken by those desires. I mean, isn't this exactly what addiction is? We start by freely choosing that substance or that activity or whatever, but eventually it begins to control us. We are given over to it, not because of God's direct cause, but rather as a result of him allowing us the freedom to do what we want. See, Paul's ultimate point in Romans 1, if you read to the end of the chapter, is that the end result of this wrath, the end result of this is death. But again, it's the, conse- it's the wrath of the consequences. These things will eventually destroy us, not because of some lightning bolt from heaven. We are destroyed by the natural trajectory, the natural pathway that our own sinful choices place us on. That's the death Paul is referring to here. That's the death he's referring to. And all of this, listen, listen, all of this grieves God's heart. It grieves God's heart, not because of some power trip he's on. It grieves God's heart because of all the pain and brokenness that result from people freely choosing this path. Again, even God's wrath is fueled by love. One of the most powerful pictures of this occurred, interestingly enough, on Palm Sunday, which we're celebrating this weekend, as Jesus is getting ready to enter into Jerusalem. 
And we tend to focus on the crowd expressing praise to Jesus as he rides in on a donkey, right? And that's important. But something significant happened right as he was getting ready to enter the city. So check this out. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus is weeping. He's weeping. Why is he weeping? Because he knows that very soon Rome is going to destroy the city of Jerusalem and it will be horrible. The implication is that had the Jewish people fully turned to him and began living their lives, living out this kingdom that he was ushering in the Sermon on the Mount, all that, had they done that, this horrible thing wouldn't have happened. But it did happen. In AD 70, a few decades later, the city of Jerusalem was leveled by Rome. The Jewish people experienced God's wrath, the natural consequences of their rejection of Jesus. And it broke God's heart, but he let it happen. Again, the Romans were the ones doing it, but God let it happen, hoping that that experience would result in their ultimate repentance. This repeated description in scripture of God's wrath, him allowing us to experience the consequences of our choices, that this has been so helpful for me in being able to reconcile in my mind and heart God's anger with his love. And it helps me make more sense of the cross. See, for years, the message that I heard about the cross was that God was really angry at us humans because of our sin. And so he needed to kill us as just punishment. But because of his love, he instead chose to kill Jesus, his son. Now I realize that may be overstated, but that's the basic message I heard. God was really mad at me, but he took that out on Jesus and now he loves me. Honestly, I had a hard time flipping the switch and now celebrating the love of this God that was previously ready to kill me because of my sin. I I didn't know how to fit this idea of God's wrath into his love. But when I began to see, as we've been talking about here, how the Bible describes God's wrath in terms of us experiencing the natural consequences of our sin, suddenly the cross became the place where Jesus allowed himself to be given over to the ultimate natural consequence of my sin, death itself. Jesus died in our place, but not because God killed him. We killed him. The Jewish and Roman authorities killed Jesus. So he experienced on our behalf God's wrath, the ultimate consequence for our sin. And then he rose from the dead, all because of love. Now notice what this means for us. Look at how Paul describes this in Romans 5, verses 8 and 9. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay. That's the cross part. Then he says, since we have now been justified by his blood, that means just just as if I never sinned, so our sin's been wiped away, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? See, so often people, we read this verse, and I did for years, read this verse as if it's talking about us being saved from some future wrath in the end times, or we're saved from that. But that's not the wrath Paul is talking about here. And we know that because of how Paul uses the word wrath earlier in the book of Romans. Paul in chapter five is talking about the same wrath he described earlier in, this, in, in the same book, chapter one of Romans. 
What he's saying here is that God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to experience the ultimate consequence of our sin, death. He, he experienced the ultimate consequence of our sin so that we could be saved from the destruct, that destructive pathway in this life so that we in the power of the spirit can choose a different pathway, a different way of living, one that brings life as its natural consequence rather than destruction and death. What we dare not miss from Paul's words here in Romans 5, and from Exodus 34, six and seven, and from the entire story of scripture is that God is and has always been and will always be loving. His love is and has always been compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness, a love that is forgiving and also is just. This is the God who has revealed to us his name in Exodus 34 and who has shown himself in the person of Jesus. The question is, do you know him in this way? Are you living in the fullness of who he is and his amazing heart for you? You know, I can't think of a better way for us to enter into this holy week than this focusing our hearts on this amazing God who is and has always been love and who gave himself for us so that we could experience life. Amen. Let's pray together. So I want to encourage you right now just to take a few moments and just to quiet your heart. And as we're quieting our hearts, I want us to reflect on God's wrath. The way we've been talking about it today, the way scripture has revealed this to us. For some of us, maybe we've been afraid of God or we've been avoiding him because of a, an idea of wrath that's not rooted in his love. And we're just kind of this lightning bolt, just kind of afraid God's mad at it, all that stuff. What would it look like I'm just, if that's been your perception of God, especially because of this, the way you um, understood his wrath, what would it look like? What would it, what would it look like? What would it mean to your heart just to receive this truth that God's wrath is actually his loving, the loving, his loving decision to let us experience the consequences of our choices? That it's a really loving thing. So God, would you help us see you the way you are described in Exodus 34 in all of your attributes and to not be afraid of you, but to run to you and experience you in the fullness of who you are. For others of us, um, just in terms of another response, maybe this message is intended by God to be a bit of a wake-up call for you or for me, right? Are, are there any choices we're making in the present that, gonna, that are going to have a significant impact on the trajectory, not only of our lives, but on the lives of our children and grandchildren? Is there any area of your life where the Spirit of God is gently saying, look, this needs to be dealt with now because there's a trajectory this is headed on, right? This adulterous relationship, this anger, this addiction. You, you may be keeping it a secret and thinking it's not impacting anyone, but it is. It has the potential to impact generations. So are you willing to come clean, to bring it out of hiding and to let Jesus and some trusted others help you change the trajectory of your life. Father, I wanna pray for anyone in that situation. God, sometimes we need a wake up call. Sin likes to keep us in the present. Oh, this won't hurt anyone, but, but there's a trajectory to it. And God, I pray for anyone that you're speaking to them about something that needs to come out of hiding, something that needs to be dealt with. 
Otherwise, it's going to be impacting many people beyond just themselves. And would you help them? Would you help them have the courage to bring that out of hiding? And with your help to change the trajectory of their lives. God, thank you for the pathway, the trajectory that you have placed us on, through the, all of us on, through the power of your spirit. We love you. We thank you for these last several weeks, just what you've shown us and revealed to us about who you are. And I pray for this holy week that we would focus our hearts on you and grow in our experience of the amazing God that you are. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody, it's time to talk about the sermon and the things behind it and the things that are going to be ahead of it. So um, I, I had the opportunity to be a part of the, the entire like sermon Harry's the behind the scenes conversations and and it seems that the whole sermon series has been pointed towards today like uh, it's coming uh, oh no um, it's coming <laughs> but Here's it was the, the unavoidable one yeah it's like to get to. it's going to have to happen <laughs> it's true and it was kind of like all of the other topics they're hopeful and good and promising and then you have at the end it's like here's the place that the hammer hits the or mm-hmm. the hammer hits or the yeah, other shoe falls right, or right right and and so i was kind of expecting it to be heavy and hard and like the other side of god and that didn't ever happen mm, and right. so i was kind of like it just affirmed everything else. Mm. How did that happen? Um, so explain the overall journey that you've been on to bring you to the place of going, hold on, God doesn't have the underbelly. It's, or it's just, he is who he is, who he is, who he is. Right. He doesn't have an anger problem. Yeah. Um, I mean, he gets angry. We've talked about that. But that that's why I don't know how I got there other than a lot of um, podcasts and reading and just thinking through for weeks, knowing this message was coming, um, just trying to process it and then realizing how well it fits into the whole theme of God's wrath in Scripture. And once I began to just realize this is huge um, because, it again, it – it um, changes the paradigm for me of for a long time of God has an anger problem and his anger is directed to me, towards me. But thankfully, Jesus kind of gets between us. So God, I can experience his love sort of, you know, it just has been a weird, I haven't been able to reconcile that very well in my own heart. Like, is he loving or is he angry? And how do I, was he, he was angry before I became a Christian, but now he loves me. How do I reconcile that? And then John 3, 16, he loves the whole world. So how, how do you reconcile that? And so that's where this passage, this message became an opportunity for me to articulate um, some thoughts regarding how this, I think, can be reconciled in in a way that doesn't divide God into two different parts and who are we going to get today, but he's actually one and the same. Old Testament, New Testament, Exodus 34, the person of Jesus, this is who God is. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it in um, where you started to develop the third and the fourth generation. Yeah. Because that, like, gets you around the corner and frees you up from answering or having to conclude that God is angry and he's going to smite us with a heavy hand right. and that brings us around the corner to go in a uh, in a different direction that doesn't like eliminate the justice of God at all but it carries it in a different direction that I think uh, helps a lot of us because we ask a lot of questions about how uh, a finite action can like have an infinite mm-hmm. um 
impact. Consequence, yep. yes. Yeah, and I was thinking too, what if if that last statement would have been dropped off of Exodus 34, 6, and 7? Mm-hmm. That would be a problem if he hadn't yes. said anything about punishing the guilty. Mm-hmm. Then we re- I think then we really would have a problem with God because, but what about? He's forgiving and compassionate. What about child abuse? What about what's going on in the Ukraine? I mean, you know, there's a part of us, we need that last part. Mm-hmm. But I think we, we need to understand it correctly. We need to understand it properly. Yeah, yeah. And that's where, I just think it's so fascinating. Technically, the word generations is not anywhere in the passage. Okay. So that's a, the translators <coughs> have added that. But I think in the NIV, it's weird they add it to the third and fourth, but they don't mm. add it to the thousands. And I okay. think that's a that's a translation a mistake okay. in my because both of them imply the same thing to a thousand generations or to the third and fourth generation, right? Okay. But the third and fourth, as you say, it does seem to it really leans into this idea that there is an impact to our choices, but it's not forever and ever and ever and ever, you know. It can contrasting it with God's love is to thousands of generations, but it's still very real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like, like God's heart is to eventually yes. bring you to a place of being whole, bring you to a place of... Yeah. because I mean, the story of Joseph, for instance, you the, the trajectory got broken, right? Right. Finally. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, and and then I mean Joseph kind of foreshadows Christ, and so that's a cool way where sure. the Genesis story we see these generations Adam and Eve all the way to their great grandson Lamech, you know, um, their sin that that getting kind of just impacting, and then story story starts again with Abraham. We see you know Isaac Jacob, but then Joseph um, he becomes the Christ figure, and the that cycle got broken. Is that is that why you think in Matthew he begins the gospel with the genealogy so that he can get in an opposite way to the thousandth generation being Jesus himself yeah, that's as so the greatest expression of love? I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know either. It's a question maybe we don't <laughs> can't answer, but, but it we does, get to Jesus and it, it, there's it, the expression yeah. of that love. Um, and, and that he, right, I think it de- definitely points to the idea that Jesus is the one who gives us the power to break the trajectory, right? Well, always, yes. Um, and uh, he, in him, we experience that thousand generation love, as you said. Uh, yeah. So that, that's kind of, that's pretty cool. I love that. Yeah. So um, going back just a bit, um, the ex- Sample of the example of parenting and Joshua and the agents of, of Shield <laughs> yeah. and that whole thing. Um, during that part, I had like this huge like heart like it's like yes, it's like um, th- thinking about God and how He punishes and thinking about His heart behind it compared to. He's just simply punishing and thinking about the mm. Father's heart and yes. how there are those times that seeing the b- bigger picture as a f- father and then hoping <laughs> hoping that the child is going to do the correct thing because the heart you have for them to succeed and be happy and enjoy incredible things and then they don't do it, and you're like, oh, yeah. man, I'm bummed. And then I began thinking, so does God, like, hope for us? Like, does he see, like, man, here's all of the incredible, good, beautiful, oh, man. <laughs> and then, like, there's this, like, man, I'm bummed, but I'm here. Okay. And... Uh, just like yeah. thinking about God's heart behind it compared to this harsh bump a bump a bump a bump he does this we do this if you do this you do this this is it but God God actually 
feels. Yeah, I'm thinking yeah. of. I, I just want. I don't know. I don't. When, as you bring that up, I'm thinking of the 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 prodigal son, mm -hmm. and the son goes off, and he's he is beating himself up in the end about right. the decisions that he has made that led him down that path, and the father has been waiting and waiting and waiting, and there's this you know, incredible reception of love uh, as he comes back. But the consequences of his departing, he yeah, experienced them. Yeah. Well, and what are the consequences for the father? And that's what you're talking about. The father's got it, he's agonizing. Yeah. That's why he celebrates, my son was dead, now right. he's found. He's and like, he's like, expect it. Like, he, he, was, he, he was coming right. and hoping to see him, and he yes. finally did. And it, it you took, know? honestly, again, I this is, we don't get into the whole sovereignty of God thing. Right, right. right. But it really, it took the son getting, he had to experience the consequences of his sin to the point he came to his senses. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the father punishing him that made him come to the, directly punishing him. Right, right. It was the father actually letting him <laughs> experience those consequences. So he, he came to that conclusion. And then, and I think the father's heart as it gets back to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and all that, it's the word that I, and the Bible Project, I was listening to some of their podcasts about some of this stuff. They use this word agonizing love. And I thought mm. that's so, that's such a powerful description. The father in the prodigal son story, he's agonizing. He's grieving his son's departure. Right. But he's hopeful. He's yeah. waiting, you know, and hoping he comes back. And uh, I love that idea of, it was eye-opening to me hearing that story with Josh of just when I was replaying, it was like, I, yeah, I actually, I feel sad when he makes that choice. I want to sit and watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. with him. You know, there's something about, I'm impacted by it as well. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so, you said you didn't want to get into the sovereignty of God, but... <laughs> oh, no. And I don't, <laughs> no, but, but what I want to say is that Yes, we affirm the sovereignty of God. He knows these things. And yet, in his accommodation, in his condescension to us as humans, he, we see him feeling that. We see him hoping that. And it's not to deny one, but it's to, it's to relate more with us, yep. which is the whole point of the incarnation of Jesus, in fact. You know, it's the, it's the coming to humanity so that he can empathize with all that we go through as, a, as humans. But I still think our choices are our choices. Yeah. You know, and that's the tension. Yeah, okay. They, they, yeah. They, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, really no, I, I agree, yeah. Otherwise, we would just be robots. And so there, there is some, there's something about our free will yeah. that puts God in this agonizing heart position. Right. And I don't understand how it all works. Right. And yeah. I know God's in control. But, uh, man, our choices matter, and they cause God agony from a loving mm -hmm. heart. Mm -hmm. um, and he longs for us to make different choices to choose him because life goes a lot better when we do, you know. Mm -hmm. How God works that all yeah. out in terms of his sovereignty, I don't know. But I, I, I think sometimes the sovereignty of God has been emphasized so much okay. that it's yeah. almost like um, his. Um, we lose sight of the the power of his love for everyone, mm -hmm. you know. Sure. And uh, but I don't know what your thoughts are on that. <laughs> well. You, I there's I always a, there's always a, a huge tension and I'm just there for stay sure. Right yeah. No, no, no. Just avoid this there one is at a all huge costs. tension, but I, the 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 direction of the sermon I, or the message, I I really liked that because um, it reminded me of what C.S. Lewis wrote, wrote, writes in um, the Great Divorce, where he talks about in the end there are really only two kinds of people: those who say to God your will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done. Um, and there's that trajectory of the natural consequence of our decisions. Yeah, that's in a, I didn't really get into this in the sermon, but this is the terrifying part of this, is that I think 
um, Romans one describes people whose people whose hearts are actually being shaped by the choices they make. So uh-huh. it's not just oh I sin I but my you know I feel the pain of bucking my toe or I do this and I'm addicted to this. The long term impact of that is death in that we actually freely choose our own that's cs lewis is yeah, in, yeah. in the great divorce it's right. like these people are in hell because they're freely choosing it they don't want they they would be terrified by by the yeah. love of god that would purify they they just they have their heart has been hardened mm-hmm. and that's the scary part of romans 1 i think uh-huh. of god's wrath at the ultimate the ultimate expression is when people are freely choosing yeah forever to say, I don't want your love. I don't want you in my life, and that's so heartbreaking, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, no, I I agree with you completely on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. So to kind of tie it up here, this is yes. our final sermon for the sermon series that kind of had this goal of painting this very biblical picture of God, his character, his heart, um, and to kind of draw, uh, to separate out from all the other things that people say about God or culture, paints God as being so, so if, how, how has the, tell me the hope that you have for the people who have heard the sermon series, mm-hmm. the thing that you hope they have heard and that they are going to um, begin to yeah. embrace. Yeah, I mean, I really, I think the more I had a sense going in, but I felt like it grew throughout the series. This is like a pivotal foundational series in the life of our church. I mean, that is, and mm-hmm. I just had that conviction, and I still do, that Exodus, that, that passage, Exodus 34, 6 or 7, I hope we keep going back to it, and it becomes a pillar in people's mm-hmm. walk with God because it is such a powerful, beautiful picture of what God is like, and Jesus fully represents that. So my hope, honestly, is that that more and more fuels our understanding of God. Um, and so that people's image of God, their perception of God is significantly shaped by what we have looked at and that their instinctive response after failure or whatever, their instinctive mm. response is, oh yeah, God's forgiving. God's compassionate. His love is faithful. It's devoted. It's has said, you know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, the, that would be so awesome if, um, if all of us and those who have interacted with this series, if what's happening is that their image of God is changing, their perception of God is more accurate. Because yeah. once, you know, once we get a correct image of God, it, it has such a profound impact on how we live. Yep. Right. Absolutely. And, yeah. and if we have I a agree. negative, we have a misperception of God, he's angry, he's distant, he's, that impacts how we live, impacts our spiritual lives too. So yeah. that's my hope um, and prayer for this series. Um, it's been it's been a lot of fun, actually. Yep. Yeah, very good. Been. All right, everyone. Great. Have an awesome day. <laughs>